This evening, we would continue our study in the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Um, about four weeks ago, we began our study in chapter 16. So we have, we have been studying it um, since last year, and we have completed 15 chapters. And we have been studying chapter 16 over the past four Tuesdays. So, the first lesson we learned in chapter 16 was from paragraph 1. And in paragraph 1, we tried to answer the question, what are good works? So, what are good works? I think it is important because, because this question comes over and over again when you say the works of unbelievers are worthless and the problem is is it are they not good and we learned that the reason is because good works properly defined are those things that are commanded by god number one are those things let me let me stop at let me go back to number one number one those things that are commanded by god either explicitly on the pages of scripture or that can be inferred by good and necessary consequence. And we said there's no part of the Bible where you are told to obey traffic light while driving. But when we go to Romans 13 and see the instruction, injunction of Paul for believers to obey civil authority, we can come to the conclusion by good and necessary consequence that obeying street light is good works. That's what we looked at in paragraph one. Then the second Tuesday, we looked at paragraph two, where we looked at the seven necessities, seven necessities of good works. And Brother Brown kindly provided us with a graphic uh, representation of that today, uh, yesterday and today. So we looked at those seven good works, uh, evidences of saving faith. They show the believer's thankfulness. They strengthen the believer's assurance. They edify other believers. They adorn the profession of the gospel. They stop the mouths of our adversaries and they glorify God. Then last week, Tuesday, we then looked at paragraph 3, 4, and 5. And what we are concerned with was the source of our good works and the limitations of our good works. Now, many of us were not here last week. So we either came late because of the traffic and some of us were online. So many of us were not here. And we said that good works... For believers, the source of good works is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit does this by enabling us. Ezekiel chapter 36. So the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Spirit enables us and on a day-to-day -day basis influences us towards good works. And we said that's what Paul was talking about in Philippians 2 when he says that God is working in us. So the working there is not past tense. God has not worked in us, even though that is true. But in the context of Philippians 2, God is working. It is a present participle in the Greek. God is working. It's a continuous thing on a day-to-day -day basis. And then we looked at the limitations of our good works, which are two. And the first thing we said was that it is not possible for a man or woman to do more than what God requires. And we said that the confession, the writers of the confession were actually tackling a doctrine in Roman Catholicism called supererogation. 
where the Roman Catholic Church taught that certain people who are saints can do more than what God has required in the Bible. And as a result of that, open an account from which ordinary people like you and me can benefit and draw from. Of course, that's where we, they, they have the, the venerate saints, saints pray for us and all of those things. I would say that's not possible. And we gave a few reasons last week. But the chief reason was, the last reason, if you recall, was that if there's anything that is above what God has commanded, logically it cannot be good works. Because good works, by definition, are those things God has commanded. The second limitation we looked at was that our best good works cannot merit salvation. Our best good works cannot merit salvation. And the key thing, or one of the key things was that the reason is because our good works cannot benefit God. In other words, our good works cannot move God. It is a human idea to say that because we praise God, God now changes his will to do something he did not intend to do before. So that's where paragraph 6 starts from. The nevertheless, if you're looking at your study notes, actually flows from what we considered last week when we said that the believer's good works are good works. The best of them cannot move God. They cannot benefit God. They cannot change God. They cannot add something to God. Paragraph 6. Nevertheless, even though we know of these limitations of our good works, believers are accepted through Christ and thus their good works are also, I'm reading paragraph 6, accepted in him. This acceptance does not mean that our good works are completely blameless and irreproachable in God's sight. Instead, God views them in his son. And so God is pleased to accept and reward our good works that are sincere, even though those good works are accompanied by many weaknesses and imperfections. So the first thing from this paragraph is, let's, let's re-emphasize this fact, actually, that we are justified and accepted by God through faith in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5. Please turn your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 5. Verse 1, I read, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So let's re-emphasize this. Now, when I was preparing, I thought maybe we should just pass by it, but let's just re-emphasize it. Let's not just pass by it. Let's remind ourselves again. Today is a good day to remind yourself, for me to remind myself, that I am accepted in Christ. Not because of anything I have done, but because of what Jesus has done. God looks upon me, God looks upon you, dear believer, as though you had kept the law completely. What Daniela was asking on Sunday, substitution, 
Christ kept the law perfectly and I am a gross offender. And by faith, God takes that righteousness of Christ and imputes it on my head and takes my gross offenses and imputes it on Christ. Double imputation. Let's remind ourselves again. Martin Luther was once asked, why do you keep preaching justification by faith? And he says he knows that his people forget it every week. And we need to be reminded because even though many of us have this as an operative principle in our head by way of doctrine, it does not show up in our lives. So before we even start talking about, okay, the good works, whether they're accepted, first of all, if you are a believer, you're accepted as you are now. If you are a believer now, you are in Christ. You are accepted because of Christ, not because of anything you have done. But God doesn't stop there. Our good works are also accepted in Christ. That's what the confession wants us to learn. Not only are our persons accepted, because that's where we stop usually. Now that we have been accepted, the good things we do are accepted in Christ. One of the mistakes we do is that after being saved, we want to adopt a kind of humility. What I mean by humility is, I get to the point where because I have been ravished by God's grace, I no longer think my good works are anything. That's an extreme. What do I mean? Oh God, we come before you today asking you to forgive us because all our good works are like filthy rags. That's wrong. That's wrong. The word that Isaiah uses, turn to Isaiah chapter 64. Isaiah chapter 64. Isaiah chapter 64 and the emphasis, or where this text is found in, is in verse 6. And Isaiah was doing, let me give you the context. What Isaiah was doing here was a community, it's not technically a lament, but it's a lament of a community. That is, he's looking at the entire nation of Israel and speaking concerning the nation of Israel. And he says, we have all become like one who is unclean. And our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. King James puts it filthy rags. Now, it's not like, just like rag. I remember one time I was teaching the children of the school. And I used the illustration of rag. Well, that's what they can understand. Now, the Hebrew word here, Ida, really talks about the garment that comes of a woman who is menstruating. That is... A garment stained with blood. Now, in the old covenant, or under that system, God had a set of rules for when it, there's emission of semen from a man and then there's emission of blood from a woman. So when a woman emits blood, she's unclean. Remember the woman with the issue of blood? What happened was that she had that constant flow. And she had to ensure that she informed people that she was unclean. Now, the word that Isaiah is using here is that cloth that has been used and is unclean. And Isaiah looks at it and says, our works are like filthy rags. 
It is wrong then for we who have been redeemed and saved, whose works are accepted in Christ to say our works are like filthy rags. You know what that means? Our works cannot please God because what is unclean cannot please God. We'll look at a couple of scriptures quickly to buttress this point. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5. It says, First Peter 2, it says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood. So this is like the reason. So he gives us two reasons. Peter gives us two reasons. You are being built up. You are, you are Christians now. It's a spiritual house. Number one, to be a holy priesthood. Number two, to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So the spiritual sacrifices that we offer because we are in Christ are actually acceptable to God. They are not filthy rags. Now, I understand what we mean when we say that. Perhaps we are trying to say that before we were saved, our works were like filthy rags, and that's correct. And that's outside of Christ. If you remove Christ from the equation, our works are properly filthy rags. Because remember last week in paragraph 5, we said they cannot benefit God, they cannot please God, they cannot do anything, God would. But when we are in Christ now, our works are no longer filthy rags. They are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And this is not because our works are perfect. Now, there's an error. So, this, so to, to actually deal with this issue, you have to be on a, a walk a tightrope. So there's an error that says, because you are now accepted in Jesus Christ positionally, Everything you do, God does not count as sin. Because you have a new status. So, <laughs> you've heard this before. So when God looks at you, he sees Jesus Christ, he doesn't see your sin. That's a lie. He sees our sin. He sees the weakness that accompanies our best works. That is when we do the, the biggest good works, God looks into our intentions and he sees it. It's not saying God looks at your sin. When we commit gross iniquity and God is seeing Jesus Christ, that's not biblical. In 1 Kings 8 46, we've looked at this before. When Solomon was praying about the temple, he said, For there is none who does good and does not sin. We looked at that last week. That even our best efforts are always tainted with sin. So the reason why God accepts our works, now we say our works are not filthy rags, that does not mean our works are perfect. Our works are still weak and imperfect. But the reason why God accepts them is because God views us in Christ. He accepts them. It does not mean our works are perfect. So much so, this is in paragraph 6. So, so God accepts them to the point that they please him. Our good works, humanly speaking, makes God happy. God is joyed when we act rightly, humanly speaking. Now, I'm using anthrop what, what do you call it? Anthropomorphism. God is pleased when his children obey him. The same way the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit can be grieved when we act against his precepts. 
God is pleased. Look at Hebrews chapter 6 verse 10. Hebrews 6 verse 10. It says, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you do. God is not going to overlook our good works. God is not just going to pass over it and say, ah, these are filthy rags. No. And then look at Matthew chapter 25. This is a parable of Jesus. Matthew chapter 25. This is the parable of the talents. And because of time, we may not be able to read everything. But this parable starts from verse 14. Matthew 25, you look at verse 14. It says, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. And um, when he went away, they did everything they had done. And then we come to verse 19. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came back and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over more. The same thing happened with the guy with two talents. Similarly, God rewards our good works. Because God, of course, is the master in this parable. God rewards our good works. So before you pray next time, before we pray that God, my works are filthy rags, remember that you have been saved and your good works can please God. That's the first thing, or the first point of this lesson, the good works of believers, accepted because of Christ. But then paragraph 7 deals with the good works, in quotes, of unbelievers. So I'll read paragraph 7. Works done by unregenerate people may in themselves be commanded by God and useful to themselves and others. Yet, they do not come from a heart purified by faith and are not done in a right manner according to the word of God, nor with a right goal, which is the glory of God. Therefore, they are sinful and cannot please God. They cannot qualify anyone to receive grace from God, and yet their neglect is even more sinful and displeasing to God. A couple of lessons, three major lessons. Number one lesson we learn from paragraph seven is that the unregenerate origin, origin, people may do the same work that Christians can do. Which is why it is not always a good comparison. Of course, the Bible says go to the ant and learn. I don't like that comparison when you say the Muslims do it better than us because it's, it's not a strange thing for unregenerate men to do some of the good works that believers are even commanded to do in the Bible. Do we get that? That there are some injunctions that God says we must do, we must do, we must keep this law, we must obey him, and then we find sometimes that the best place, so something happened not long ago, and a particular sister, as a kind of um, rebuke to the church, said, I found true love among unbelievers. And it's true. When we talk, if she's defining love by 
acceptance. That's often true. That the people who are, who are really willing to hear your mess are unbelievers. When you've done everything wrong, you've broken up in your relationship, there will always be an unbelieving friend who will say, guy, come and sit down and talk to me. And believers are aloof. And they say you are foolish, you are wise. And then you find such comfort among unbelievers. Believers are supposed to actually do that. Some things like arms giving. See, we don't give arms. Let's not even say I give arms. If I say raise up your hand, you really give arms. And compared to a Muslim who is actually doing zakat, we don't give arms. But God actually asks us to take care of the poor and the widows. We are even asked to have a widow's list in church. The problem that happened, that the, the, the crisis that brought about the office of the deacon was actually ministry. That some people were being neglected. And deacons were to ensure that those things were not happening. Some people were not eating from the, the church cake. And we still have that happening today. But in many places where unbelievers are, there is socialism. <laughs> there is a mutual sharing of their property. So we should not be surprised then when we see unbelievers doing good works, quote and unquote. And there are three examples we find in the Bible. Or not, not in the Bible, but there are three examples the confession gives us. Number one can be found in 1 Kings chapter 21, which is the story of Ahab. Now, if you read this part of scripture, you may think that Ahab actually was a Christian or became a Christian. 1 Kings 21, we'll read from verse 27 to 29. 1 Kings 21 27 to 29 says, And when Ahab heard those words, they are words of, 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 of um, condemnation, the Lord condemning him. Ahab tore his clothes. Ahab, King Ahab, tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon this house. So Ahab humbled himself before God. Perhaps in a way that many of us who are believers have not even humbled ourselves before God. Unbelieving Ahab, out of fear and out of terror, in a moment of fear, Humbled himself before God. Second example, Second Kings chapter ten. Second Kings chapter ten, and this is the story of a man who, at his ordination, we would have said was a Christian. The man's name was Jehu, anointed by or commissioned by Elisha. Second Kings chapter ten. We look at verse twenty-eight. Then Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. But Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, that is, the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. Verse 31. 
But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the, of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. So Jehu was actually the instrument of God. When he received the oil on his head, he had instructions and he took out those enemies. But still, his heart was not with God. But he had good works. Philippians chapter 1, now we may argue. Now, so there's something you notice when you look at modern renderings of the confession, they remove some texts that the Puritans, in the, period, they wrote it in the, the confession was written in the Puritan age, that they kept. One of those texts is Philippians chapter 1. And so I was scratching my head about why this text is used to actually support this, um, this idea. Verse 15, Paul says, Some preach Christ, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? That in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So these guys are not Christians. But they preach Christ. So it is possible for an unbeliever to preach and people get saved. Because people are not saved by the preacher. They are saved when the Holy Spirit calls them effectually through the word. Which is why in church history, they had issues when somebody has baptized me and 10 years later, the person falls out of grace. Or let me give another example, popular example, Ravi Zacharias. Whether that issue was true or not, I don't know. But it actually caused a crisis of faith for many people. That why, how, how? Hey, am I truly a believer? If I got saved through the ministry of Ravi, who we have come to see, according to the news reports, is an unbeliever. So, that's by the way. But unbelievers can actually preach God's word. Unbelievers can proclaim and say, this is Jesus Christ, believe in him. Unbelievers can write books that people can be saved by. Unbelievers can, uh, unbelievers can um, create movies, Christian movies and Christian materials that people will be saved by. So they can do good works. They are doing those things that are commanded by God. God actually commanded that we should humble ourselves. Ahab humbled himself. A direct command came to Jehu to kill those people. Jehu did it, wiping out the house of Ahab. And then these people are actually carrying the gospel to preach. But in these three instances, we see that all regenerate people can do good works. That's those things commanded by God. What then is the problem with the work of unbelievers? The main problem is that unbelievers' work fail to meet the four criteria before a work can be considered good work, a good work, it must pass four tests. Now, unbelievers meet the first test, which is, is commanded by God. Or unbelievers can meet the first test. They can meet it. 
But upon closer examination, we will see that unbelievers do not meet the four criteria that are required for a work to be considered good, biblically speaking. So the first criteria, tick, we give it to them. The unregenerate man can even be among us, can be the most fervent in church. But he will miss three criteria. Number one, the good works of an unbeliever will not proceed from a heart that is purified by faith. And let's turn to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4 and verse 5. This thing that used to give us issues. Was Cain an unbeliever? Was Cain a believer? Cain was an unbeliever. Genesis 4 verse 5. It says, but for Cain and his offering, God had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. We're going to support this idea with two passages in the New Testament. Number one is Hebrews chapter 11 verse 4. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 4. Hebrews 11 verse 4. And now this is where the matter is clearer. It says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was, command, he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts by faith. But then in 1 John chapter 3, we looked at this a few months back. 1 John chapter 3, when the apostle wanted to give an injunction on love, he said in verse 11, verse 12 rather, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did Cain murder Abel? Because Cain's works were evil and his brother's righteous. The problem of Cain was the heart. Cain actually went out to do the sacrifice. Right? Cain went out to do the sacrifice. The problem of Cain, according to scripture, now there's the idea that the problem of Cain was that Cain knew that God mandated burnt offering. Right? And Cain did not do it. But then, when the law was being written and progressive revelation, there was also a thing as a grain offering. That is, it was not only animals that were burnt. Sometimes the priest would take the grain offering and burn it. So the problem of Cain was not the offering. That is a, a, a result of the main problem. His heart was not purified by faith. There was no faith in Cain. Cain was an unbeliever. His heart, now, the good works must proceed from a heart that has been purified by faith and a heart that continues to put its faith in Christ. So criteria number two failed. Criteria number three. They are not done in the right manner according to the word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. And Paul, writing to the church of Corinth, says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Verse 3. If I give all, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So Paul is not saying it is wrong to deliver up one's body to be burned. 
he's not saying it is wrong to give away all we have. God's criteria is that love must follow such deeds. If we take commands and strip them of the manner in which God has said those commands are to be done, they do not qualify to be good works. If we come before God and offer our 10%, without that generosity or a generous heart that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 8, it's not good works. If we come grudgingly, because Paul says God loves a cheerful giver. The manner. Number four criteria, or number three that they miss, is that the good works of unbelievers are not done with the right goal in mind. Matthew chapter 6, we looked at this two weeks ago in our Sunday school. That when you pray, do not do your prayer on the streets. Because then you are seeking for the praise of men and your reward has been. That praise, that acknowledgement, prayer warrior, that's your reward. The unbeliever will not seek God's glory in his good works or her good works. The unbeliever will build a school so that you praise him. So that when the street is being done, he'll be honored or she'll be honored and say, this is Mr. Maduka's street. That's what the unbeliever will do. The unbeliever will do so much, but the, the thing is, and, and the test of this is usually, if the acknowledgement does not come, the believer is concerned with God's glory. He does it, she does it, and say, God, take all the glory. But the unbeliever, in his or her good works, will say, where is the acknowledgement? It will be done not for God's glory. And the confession also gives us the results of the works of unbeliever, which are three. Number one, because of all of these things, because the unbeliever meets criteria one, but fails the remaining three, the works of an unbeliever are sinful and cannot please God. Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1 from verse 10 to 15. I'm going to, it's, it's, this is just one thing I want to get out, but to read it for context. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Now, this is not actual Sodom. It's actually talking to Judah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls, of lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? This also supports the idea that it must be done in the right manner. God does not call for trampling when you are making your sacrifice. But verse 13, bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. The works of unbelievers are sinful. They cannot please God. Even if they are actually doing the right thing. 
In the Old Testament system, what killed them was, they just felt like, what God requires is a bull. Let's give God a bull. And God says, this is the same thing God says in Amos chapter 4, chapter 5, that I am tired of your sacrifices. I am tired of your sacrifices. Even though you are doing that thing, because you fail to meet all of these criteria, your sacrifices are not done by faith. They are not in the right manner according to my word. You don't have the right goal in mind. They are sinful and cannot please me. Number two, the good works of unbelievers cannot qualify them to receive God's grace. We've said this over and over again. They cannot qualify them. Impossible. If they are sinful and cannot please God, how can they qualify any man to receive grace? Number three, and this is the interesting part of it. Look at the last sentence in paragraph seven. They cannot qualify anyone to receive grace from God and yet their neglect is even more sinful and displeasing to God. Which is, if you not do, wahala day. And if you do, no effect. Let's take it again. When unbelievers do good works, they are not accepted to God. Yet, it is better for an unbeliever to even do it than to even neglect doing it. Let me give us an example. I want to use an example, but it will be a very simple example. We understand this thing about political leaders, that you must cheat. But it is better that when you cheat, you also allow the people to eat of the national cake. That's a very big example. But we understand, even when we are dealing with our children, that the child who obeys mommy to set up their room even if the child is not doing it from a pure heart of obedience and is doing it grudgingly, it is better for that child than the one who will not even do it at all. That's what the confession is saying. That the good works are commanded, right? And even though an unbeliever is doing it not correctly, it is better for the unbeliever to even be doing it. The judgment is worse when the unbeliever is not doing it. Does that make any sense? Have I lost us? In other words, there are grades of disobedience. And this is why we commend our children to pray even when we know they are not yet saved. Right? We commend our children to do good works even though we know they are not yet saved. Because it will be a worse thing. It is still sinful and yet displeasing when it's not even done at all. Now, I read a book some years back by a man called Gardiner Spring. The title of the book is The Power of the Pulpit. And in that book, Gardiner Spring, I've said this before sometime, Gardiner Spring said that one of the, one of the power, one of the, one of the benefits of a, of a biblical pulpit is that it stems evil in, it, it, it reduces the amount of evil in society. Even if the people are not being saved Sunday after Sunday. Imagine you come every Sunday and be told that you are cheating and that is wrong. It will bring some kind of morality. Are we together? That's what we are talking about. That even though the works of unbelievers are not accepted, it is still sinful if an unbeliever does not do it. And so that's why we still implore unbelievers to do good works. Not for salvation's sake. You can't see a man who is not obeying traffic light and say, you are not a believer. Come on. You will kill somebody. Oh. 
So th that's, that's it. That's the study for tonight. Number one lesson, the main thing we've learned, the, the main body, is the works of believers are accepted. Second, that's paragraph six, paragraph seven. The works of believers, unbelievers are not accepted. But let me end with three closing thoughts for us before we take one or two questions. Number one, I want us to go home with this knowledge that we can please God or displease God by how we act. Christians can please or displease God. Our good works are not inconsequential. We don't just look at justification by faith and say, which is true, it's a glorious truth, justification is final. Justified once, justified forever. Therefore, my good works do not matter. That's not biblical. My good works can please God or they can displease God. And when my my, my, my works, rather, can please or displease God. And when my works do not please God, when they constantly displease God, God will often bring the rod of discipline upon me. My works matter. Whether I obey the traffic lights matter. Whether I give to the poor matters. Whether I give to the needy, whether I give to the church, whether I... Honor God when nobody's looking at me when I'm alone with my mobile device. Whether I say the truth or not matters. Whether I do my job diligently, I was employed to do this. Whether I do it or not, it matters to God. It's not a, it's not, our good works are not random, inconsequential things. And look at this. Should it not be, should it not be our greatest desires to please God? If God has saved us from the wretch that we were in, when our works were actually proper filthy rags, polluted garments, and God has lavished upon us all of these blessings in Christ, is it not, is it not logical? Which is what Paul argues in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Is it not logical? Is it not reasonable then that we want to please God? I implore us to seek to please God daily. My second thought for us tonight is that we must know that God actually accepts our efforts. And this is an encouragement to us. Sometimes we give up too easily. That I have tried to read my Bible for five days. And so one year I have a friend. And at the end of the year, she shared something on her December 31st. She was a co-worker. I was working with her before. And she shared something on her status, and it was from YouVersion Bible app. And she had opened YouVersion Bible app for 365 days straight. Of course, whether it was showing or not in her life, that's a different matter. But then she had that streak, and it was something she boasted of. I've had friends who, Duolingo, this thing, I don't know, a few years back it became a thing. And then you, you, you're just trying to meet that streak. Let me get it, let me get it. Sometimes we do that in our Christian lives and when we fail, we become discouraged. Our efforts, that striving, pleases God. Those feeble efforts to be holy, that, that fight and struggle that, no, I don't want to sin, it pleases God. Forget to, your good works are not, they can never be perfect. <laughs> so if we're looking for a day when we wake up in the morning and obey God 100%, <laughs> we will never find it. Before you finish morning devotion, you fought with your wife or your husband. Before you've left the house, your children, one of your child has annoyed you. And all of you are coming to church on Sunday. There's already an issue. There's already an issue. But those efforts where I say, 
Lord, I really want to please you. And I'm going to do this, this, this. Okay, to please you, I'm going to switch off my phone before I sleep. So that I can wake up praying. I'm going to keep my phone far from my bed. Those, and you fail. And you re-strategize again. And you say, I need to do this. They please God. They please God. So even if my good works are in comparison to a giant Christian, maybe the Puritans or Pastor Butsu, my good works are like, insignificant. They still please God. And so we should constantly try to make effort. Put, put small, put extra effort. <laughs> and my third thought for us is we must remember. I started with this and I'll end with this. We must remember that the reasons are good work, the main reason our good works please God is because of Christ. We must never lose sight of it. And that will prevent us from falling into abject despair when we fail. Because when we fail, we, we, we run into the error of thinking, I have failed, therefore everything has ended between me and God. And there's no, there's, no, there's no restoration of relationship. But when we keep this in mind, that the reason I'm even able to do this is because Christ has given me his spirit and Christ has made my works acceptable, that brings us back to check. And if you have not come to Christ for salvation, forget all the good works you are doing. They don't please God. If you like, be the first person to come to church. If you like, be the person who gives 20%. If you like, do everything that the Bible says you should do. They are rubbish. So I urge you, if you have not come to Christ in faith, turn to him today. And he will save you from your sins. We conclude chapter 16. Any questions? Questions? Franklin? Okay, so how many questions do we have? We will not have a repetition of Sunday. No extra questions. How many people have questions? Okay, we are still processing it. Okay, let's wait for 10 more seconds while the mic is given to Franklin. That aren't they keeping the law like um, government, like when they do good, like when they don't kill someone, aren't they keeping the law like the national law? Yes, they are. That's actually the duty of the government, right? When a person is in power, the duty of the person is twofold to promote good and to punish evil. That's what the Bible says, right? So when a government does that to the best of their ability, whether it's democratic or military government, when the government does that to the best of their ability, they actually obey God's word, which is why this will not work for you. Which is why our forefathers, let me just say it, directly spoke to authority. Hmm? Our forefathers, theological forefathers now, the Puritans, the reformers, they directly spoke to authority. John Calvin then would write a book and he would, he would, he would write a dedication to the, to the emperor then. And the reason is because he's telling him that listen to God's word and this is what God wants you to do. The problem, however, is if those works do not meet the criteria of proceeding from a heart of faith, do not meet the criteria of 
the, uh, the purpose of meeting God's glory does not meet the criteria of being done in the right manner. They are not pleasing to God. They are not acceptable to God. Exactly. So they are like categories. Sorry, criteria, four points, bullet points. So you always check the good works of commanded by God from a heart of faith, done in the right manner, and to the glory of God. So any other question? Somebody raise their hand here. Question. Yes, the question. So, um, within the the end of um, is it the of seven? The end of seven. It says, therefore, they are sinful and cannot please God. They cannot qualify anyone to receive grace from God, and yet their neglect is even more sinful and displeasing to God. So, my question is. Uh, is this conclusion just logical because um, it's more like in relation to other humans based on the examples you gave explaining this it seemed as though the the reason why this is very important is because to an extent we benefit from people not going over the edge when it comes to living in sin for example right you, you give an example of a child who cleans his room, although he's not a Christian or he's not saved, for example. So, I'm asking, is it really based on a logical conclusion or is, is there a text in scripture that supports this? What do you think? I don't know, that's what I'm asking. Ah. There's no way you will not know. That you say you do not know. No, looking at, it, looking at it, looking at it. criteria eh? of asking this question. Looking at it, has eh? Jesus ever say? Has okay. Jesus did Jesus ever say it will be worse for you than Sodom and Gomorrah? Did Jesus ever say that because some people listen to preaching and turn? Did Jesus ever compare punishment by saying it will be far worse for this category of people? That's the scripture, brother Jim. Given the four criteria. But sorry, there are passages, the passages in the text can further answer Job 21, 14 to 15, then Matthew 25, Jesus, uh, uh, the, the goat and the sheep. We talked about that which day, uh, the two Sundays ago. Yes. Given the four criteria, is it possible to see if you fail one, you've actually failed all? Yes. In the test of good works, hmm. Is it possible to say if you don't meet one, you've actually not met any? You just thought you've met the three, or you've met three. I understand what you are saying. Like for example, the unbeliever. Yes. Yes. So the unbeliever. The the reason is because all four are tied together. That's that's what the confession is arguing for. That for one deed of obedience to be properly a deed of obedience, it must be done in faith. That's how already disqualifies the unbeliever. That is, is one act, though. It's one act. So let's assume the good work means um, closing this Bible. Now, when an unbeliever closes the Bible, those of us who are from outside will say, this is a good work, right? But then, as he's closing the Bible, if he doesn't do it in faith, he's not actually doing what God commands. Because God commands that our works must proceed from a heart of faith. 
God commands that we should worship him in the right manner. We should serve him in the manner which he has prescribed. Which is why even in the Old Testament, when God was giving the law, five books of Moses, God was not just concerned with slaughter a lamb. There were other things that followed it. In fact, there was a warning to the high priest about how he himself should, there's a right manner. So the high priest cannot come and know where something is, a short nika inside. It will just appear. And God said, don't appear before me naked. So that's right manner. And then faith, of course. We see Cain and Abel. Faith, he was doing similarly, or seemingly the same thing. But it's one act. And if you fail one, everything is useless, of course. What we're saying is that to the human eye, it looks as though they're actually keeping the command. But if you weigh the command fully, <laughs> There's no proper command of God being obeyed fully, properly. It's like, um, I don't know, no, no analogy is coming to my mind. But like, you don't pass the test. You, don't, you, you actually wrote something, but it's not pass mark. It's not a pass mark. So what the unbeliever does, according to the Bible, may look like it's, it's a good thing. You want to answer? Give Sister Fakim. Question? Okay. There's question. Okay. If I'm not mistaken, the examples you gave about good works of unbelievers being individually rewarded by God, apart from the fact that when unbelievers do good work, it can benefit the whole society at large. So I think you gave example of Ahab and one other person in the Old Testament. Yeah, Jehu. Yes, and Jehu. They were sort of rewarded for their good works. Is it a thing that happened in the Old Testament um, for instance, where unbelievers could uh, be, um, by, that the Spirit of God could come on unbelievers and they would do certain things for God. Is it the same thing or does it still apply that unbelievers can be rewarded even? Okay. I think for unbelievers, but we may not want to call it a reward. I mean, I'd rather put it under common grace. Right? So an unbeliever, an unbelieving man, Marries an unbelieving woman, and their marriage still makes sense. Past some of us with the church. Yeah, it's possible. You've not seen it before. I've seen it too. I see where a serious, a serious man in church, if they pray well, <laughs> wanted to kill his wife. It happens. It happens. So, what the unbeliever is reaping then is just the rewards of common grace. That is, if you obey certain principles, like just natural principles, really, certain things will, will come about. If an unbelieving man is disciplined, very disciplined, and does not cheat on his wife, he takes those courses, reads those books, those books about how to have a good marriage, how to speak to your wife, he can come out better off and be rewarded with... So, for example, now, Let's talk about child rearing. It is possible for a Christian because the Christian is not applying certain principles. The child that comes from a Christian home will be so wayward. But sometimes you see unbelieving children, well-mannered, they greet you well, they, band up, they, they bend down for you, they do all the right things, they do all of those things. So for me, I would put most of those things under the reward of common grace. For example, again, it is not the reason why many nations are better than us is the reward of common grace. It comes if you, if you do the right thing, basically. There's a, there's a way I'm trying to put it, but it's not coming out that way. Okay, so that would be applied to the examples Jehu and... Yes, yes. Yeah. 
question. Okay, the similar question. But wait, okay, let's 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 put more light on that question. Now, in the Old Testament, it seems as though it was an actual reward. Because God did the same thing for David, right? But it was not the exact same thing. Where God said, um, no, it was not the same for David. But anyway, God shall said, the, the sword will not depart from your family. And here God restrained his arm. Even for unbelievers, there's a sense in which God actively restrains his judgment from them. So it's not just believers that enjoy that from God. Like Nigeria, for example, the reason why Nigeria is still in existence, we've not, God has not given us the fullness of his judgments, even though we are not a Christian nation or everybody is not a Christian. I don't know if that makes sense. That sometimes God, it's common grace, restrains his judgment or God delays his judgments over sin sometimes. So, an example would be, I think it's in Deuteronomy when God wanted, God told the Israelites, you have clear out certain nations, but he told them that their iniquity has not come to fullness. God could have punished them there. So, but this is the divine prayer. This is in God's, God's own wisdom, God everything. But believers are the ones who properly are rewarded. And another example is seen in that parable. There was a guy who came and he did not do anything. The one with the one talent. He said, you are, you, are, you are a wicked man. You are a harsh man. You take where you do not sow. You do all of these things. And of course, that guy was sent to hell. Okay? So let's think of reward not just in the now, but also eternal. Reward, eternal rewards. Of course, I hope we know that we are going to be judged by our works. It's not a, it's not a children tale that when we get to heaven, we are accepted. But there's going to be a judgment. God is going to dish out rewards by works. That is, the good works we do have an echo in eternity. Which is why Jesus said, we're looking at this in Matthew chapter 7, right? He says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. If you keep on laying up yourself treasures, there's reward. So not just in the now, but eternally. So even though it looks as though the unbeliever is getting the reward, in the grand scale of things, is the believer who is properly rewarded for the good works that he does. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you will take these words that we have heard, plant it deep in our hearts, and cause that our lives would, lives would be lived in light of all of the knowledge you've poured forth to us tonight. We ask that you take us back home safely, Bless our dinner. Grant us good sleep. And may we wake up tomorrow to your goodness. In Jesus' name we pray.